Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 57 of the Summit for Wellness podcast. I'm your host, Brian Carroll, and we are right in the middle of our microbiome series. And today we are going to have a phenomenal guest. Uh, His name is Kieran Krishnan, and he is a microbiologist who has been involved in a lot of different uh, businesses and research studies and all sorts of stuff around the microbiome world. So I am super excited to have him as our our guest for this week, and he brought in so much knowledge. He's one of those people that I could ask questions every single week if I could, but I know that he doesn't have the time for that. So let's dive right into my conversation with Kieran. Kieran Krishnan is a research microbiologist and has been involved in the dietary supplement and nutrition market for the past 18 years. He is a co-founder of two organizations, New Science Trading LLC and Microbiome Labs. He is a frequent lecturer on the human microbiome at medical and nutrition conferences. And we could continue with his bio, but he has done so much that I will let him talk a little bit about it. Thank you, Kieran, for coming onto the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into all your microbiome uh, research that you've been doing. But before we go there, uh, let's talk a little bit about your background and what got you interested in the microbiome in the first place. You know, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story. So I've always been a bit of a science geek. My my mom is a uh, medical doctor, and I remember even as a kid, and this was actually in Malaysia. I grew up uh, part of the time in Malaysia. I I remember being so fascinated by her work that she would she would invite me to come into her clinic and and allow me to watch procedures she's doing, like suturing cuts and things like that. Um, so I always was significantly interested in the science and, and the kind of knowledge base that one would need to figure out how the body works. And when I got to college, I was trying to figure out my major. And the very first day in the dorms, they they showed a movie called Outbreak. I don't know if you remember that with Morgan Freeman and Dustin Hoffman. Right. That was mm-hmm. like this. Yeah. There's this, uh, movie about, uh, which is from like the mid nineties, um, an outbreak of this deadly virus that was, um, that was killing all of these people in, in small towns. And then the people that were chasing the viruses to try to figure out a cure and the source were microbiologists. And, um, so right then I said, that's what I want to do. You know, that sounds fascinating. So. I went and um, I submitted an application for the School of Microbiology in, in the medical college and started studying microbiology. And um, the world of bacteria just turns out to be such a fascinating alien world, you know, that, that we really, we can't see, of course, but it's present everywhere and functioning for us every single day. I mean, this bacteria that can live on cyanide. You know, so there are bacteria that live in the very bottom of the ocean, uh, living off of the methane vents, um, you know, 5,000 feet to the bottom of the ocean. They're, they're pretty phenomenal creatures. And, and as you study more about bacteria, you come to find out that they really control everything, not only in our environment, in the world around us, but as well as our body. 
and that's what really got me interested in studying and becoming um, you know knowledgeable in the microbiome because as it turns out our gut microbiome uh, the the collection of bacteria and all the genetic ele elements that live in our digestive tract control probably 90% of all our biological function. Yeah, and I, I am really curious about what you are talking about with they control everything, because when people look at the body, they see a lot of the physical stuff that's very visible to the naked eye, but the microbiome is very microscopic. So can you talk about how the microbiome is uh, making the body work? Yeah. So that's one of the most fascinating things. We actually have to reframe how we think of the human body, right? So we, we think of the human body as this like collection of organ systems, like a, a pancreas, a brain, a heart, a liver, kidneys, lungs, and all of those things are connected by vessels and neurons and muscles and tendons. Um, but we, we actually have to go beyond that. A human is actually something called a holobiome. That term holobiome means super organism. The reason we are so sophisticated and we're at the top of the food chain, top of the evolutionary ladder, is because our system is basically covered with a really elaborate ecology of microorganisms. Um, there are tens of thousands of species of microorganisms that live in and on our system. And like you said, we can't even see them. You know, every little square inch of our body is like a separate ecology of unique organisms that have to all work together in order to improve the, the, the wellness of the whole. And more and more what we understand now is that most chronic illnesses, most diseases are a result of a disruption in our ecology and the ecology of our body. So one of the things that was defining in that is when we looked at our genome, you know, we, we, um, we sequenced the entire human genome in the scientific community did. And what they found was that a human genome contains around 22,000 functional genes. And that sounds like a lot, but if you look at like a rice plant or an earthworm, they have over 38,000 functional genes. Right, So a rice plant or an earthworm has far more genetic capability and genetic material than we do as humans. So then the question is, how is it that we're so much more sophisticated and evolved than a rice plant or an earthworm? Well, that's because we contain and use over three and a half million bacterial genes in our system. So most of our activity that we perform, you know, the metabolizing of food, the conversion of food to, to uh, nutrients that can then be utilized by our cells for energy, the production of hormones, the signaling uh, within the body, all of those things are controlled by DNA that comes from bacteria. And, and without those uh, bacteria, those systems break down. So when you say three and a half million different uh, genes are those different strains of micro uh, bacteria or is it is that the number that's uh, populated in the body yeah so the the three and a half million genes are the number of gen uh, functional genetic elements that the bacteria contribute to our system we typically have an average person has around a thousand to fifteen hundred different species of bacteria that live in their system and each species of bacteria contributes several hundred functional genes and that's how you end up getting to that three and a half million um, plus ge genetic elements within our system so really what we're working with is is the capacity uh, from a biochemistry standpoint 
to utilize over 3 million genes uh, versus a rice plant or earthworm that has much more limited um, cap- capacity because they might not have as many microbes that inhabit their system. So of the th- 1,000 to 1,500 uh, strains of bacteria that are found in the body, how what what number of those different bacteria have we been able to study and know what their function is currently? So that's where we are kind of at the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we we know about, I would say about 10% of them, we understand their functionalities relatively well. But we're still discovering new things about those well-studied bacteria almost every single week. Um, so more than 90% of the microbiome, we don't really know a whole lot about. Um, you know, it wasn't until uh, only about five to seven years ago did we even know that they existed in our system. You know, so so just 10 years ago, our view of what was inside our body as far as microbial life was, was far more naive and primitive than what we know today. What we know today is that the system is far more complex, the ecology is far more ordered, and there are way more players involved than we ever thought possible. And earlier, you mentioned that there's an ecology of bacteria all over the body, inside and out. If we're looking at different areas of the body, is the uh, ratio of different strains of bacteria the same, or is each location different? Yeah, in fact, each location is different. That's a really good question because there um, there are a couple of areas in the body where a big diversity of microorganisms is actually not a good thing. Uh, in the gut, for example, you want to have a maximum diversity of microorganisms. The, the more the diversity of microorganisms in the gut, the healthier the individual is, the longer they live, the more resilient they are to disease. Now, on the skin, for example, you want less diversity because the skin should be dominated by two or three particular type of bacteria that maintain the health and wellness of the skin. Um, In the case of women, for example, the urogenital tract or the vaginal microbiome should be limited to uh, predominantly five or six different bacteria. If they get too much diversity in the vaginal microbiome, then it leads to all kinds of dysfunctions like chronic bacterial vaginosis or yeast infections and so on. So each different part of the body, including your eyeballs, have its has its own ecology and even on your skin when you look at your skin the pores in the skin have a different ecology than the tops of the skin cell right and and just to give a um an idea of how covered we are with bacteria when we look at our skin all we see are the skin cells themselves for every single skin cell that makes up our top layer of our skin we've got up to 35 cells of bacteria that that inhabit the space. So we've got a 35 to 1 ratio of bacteria to skin cells when we just look at our dermal layer. Um, inside our body, and if we take the body as a whole, we we typically have 10 times more bacterial cells in our system than we have human cells. Yeah, it was neat to hear you mention the, the eyeball even has microbiome because a couple episodes ago I had a Dr. Harvey Fishman on to talk about the microbiome of the eye. And I I never even thought about bacteria being on the eyeball to protect um, the eye. So it's neat to hear multiple people now talking about the microbiome of the, the eyeball. 
Yeah, we used to have this this false notion that there were areas in the body that are sterile, right? You you hear things like, oh, urine is sterile, or you hear things like amniotic fluid where the baby's is developing is sterile, or there are components inside the body uh, that are sterile. As it turns out, everything is covered with microbes. And, and these microbes are highly ordered and highly specialized to exist in that space, to perform very critical functions. Like you mentioned in the eye, they are actually protective to the eye. The microbes on the skin, the latest research shows that when you get a cut on your skin, there's actually microbes that surround the cut, the edges of the cut, and they will stimulate the cells to start regenerating and heal the wound. You know, so, so our idea of sterilizing the wound and keeping it sterile may actually slow down the healing process. It's, of course, good to clean a freshly cut wound um, because you want to make sure that no pathogenic or problematic bacteria get in there. But once it's been cleaned, uh, studies show now when you keep the wound wet, it actually heals faster. And the reason for that is the wet wound supports more bacterial growth and more of the good bacteria. So it's it's really fascinating when we think about it. We really can't do much for ourselves without the bacteria contributing. That's really interesting you mentioned that because a couple of weeks ago I did a mountaineering trip and I destroyed my heels and my boots. Mm-hmm. And then um, last week I went on a backpacking trip and my heels were still destroyed, but they were getting better. Mm-hmm. And I ended up uh, soaking my feet in a stream. And then the next day, my the wounds on my heels were completely covered up they were healed and i thought with them being wet that they would actually be more destroyed Mm -hmm. the next day but like you said it seemed like it helped with the healing process of the wound absolutely and and in with with regards to how you did it there's probably two components to it one is keeping it moist um our old idea of keeping wounds dry just is has been proven to be completely false so we want to keep it wet uh, the second part of it is because you had soaked your your um, feet in a stream, natural streams and rivers contain all kinds of really important environmental bacteria that play a role on our skin to stimulate turnover and healing and all that. So not only did you did you uh, moisturize and wet the wound, you probably exposed it to bacteria from the environment that over the years, you know, millions of years of living in and on humans have adapted this capability of actually stimulating growth in the skin. So so you probably got a two-prong approach, um, and that's why it, uh, the results were, were much quicker. I'll definitely have to remember that next time I'm out in the woods and I get a cut <laughs> of some sort. Um, so you mentioned that right now we understand around 10% of the microbiome, but with all the information that we're receiving and all the research that people like you are doing on the microbiome, we're able to start to create patterns and discover what an unbalanced or an out-of-balance microbiome might look like. So can you talk about what happens to the body when the microbiome is out of balance? Yeah, so uh, a couple of the general things. One is, and one way of being out of balance is to having really low diversity. Uh, I had mentioned that earlier that in the gut, having high diversity is really important. When you have low diversity, what you tend to have is is a significant overgrowth of certain genres of bacteria. Now, although those bacteria do play a role in the system, when they are overgrown, they prevent the uh, important functionality of other groups of bacteria. So one of the things that, that occurs, for example, is um, a, a good example of that is, is every bacteria in your gut can kind of be 
characterized as a proteolytic bacteria or a sacrolytic bacteria. So sacrolytic bacteria will take incoming carbohydrates and convert them to short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, propionate, and acetate. Proteolytic bacteria will take them in and, and convert them to other peptides, uh, but in the process also produce gas and other things. Now, the function of proteolytic bacteria is still important, but if you're if you have a dysbiotic uh, flora and you have too much proteolytic bacteria and not enough short chain fatty acid production, it'll screw up your metabolism. It'll increase inflammation. It will not allow your body to utilize um, helpful incoming nutrients. It will actually screw up gut brain signaling. Um, it will screw up your um, body's ability to access fat for energy, for example. Um, and the healing process of your intestinal lining, the enterocytes that make up your intestinal lining also become disrupted because they are so dependent on the short chain fatty acids. So that's a, um, and, and low levels of short chain fatty acids can then be attributed to higher risk for metabolic syndrome, for diabetes, for obesity, uh, for colitis, Crohn's, other inflammatory bowel disease, and so on. So all of those risks come strictly from having too much proteolytic bacteria, which have a role in the microbiome, and not enough sacrolytic bacteria, right? So it's a simple imbalance, a simple shift. And, and if you shift it the other way, just by 3 4 5%, then all of those major risks can go away. And that's how profound the maintenance of the ecology within the microbiome is. So can you give some examples of what would cause the microbiome to be out of balance, whether it's environmental or, um, you know, medication that we might be on or something along those lines? Yeah, there's, there's a lot, actually. And I always tell people, you know, the fact that we are essentially a walking, talking rainforest, we we are highly dependent on a vast a diversity of microorganisms to live in and on us in order to support our, our health and well-being. Um, having uh, evolved this way, we have done then taken ourselves and put ourselves in a very hazardous uh, environment to these microbes, right? Everything around us is an antimicrobial. Um, if you look at our water, drinking water has chlorine and fluoride in it. Those are antimicrobials. If you look at uh, most processed foods have preservatives in them that are antimicrobials. If you look at, of course, antibiotic use, even the CDC estimates that more than 50% of antibiotic prescriptions are unnecessary, and those are devastating to the ecology of, of the microbes within the system. Uh, we also know that all of the pesticides and herbicides that are used on all of the food we eat, uh, for example, glyphosate, the, the active ingredient in Roundup, is, is a really strong antimicrobial. Um, you know, and so everything around its personal care products all contain strong chemicals that are antimicrobials. I just saw a research paper uh, yesterday that was published that showed that Splenda the sweetener actually has strong um, antimicrobial effects where it screws up the ecology in the gut. So basically everything that we've surrounded ourselves with causes some degree of disruption in our ecology. Um, and, and to give you, you know, to walk through a process, let's say you get a severe cold or flu. Um, you go into the doctor in urgent care center. What a lot of doctors in urgent care centers tell me is that people come in, they're feeling 
you know, totally crappy. Um, they're sick. They've got a high fever. They want something. They want a drug. They want a prescription because they want to get back to work the next day or the following day. And so doctors actually feel pressure to give them an antibiotic prescription, even though they don't need it and even though the antibiotic can't help. Right, so they so you go to an urgent care center, you get a cor- uh, a prescription for an antibiotic, um, and you leave, and then you start taking the antibiotic. The first dose of the antibiotic will knock down your microbiome by ninety nine point nine percent. Wow! And right, it's a, it's a it's a evaporation of the functional bacteria in the gut. Now, what's good about bacteria is they will bounce back and they'll come back again. The problem is the ones that come back faster tend to be the more problematic bacteria because one of the things that occurs when you wipe down the bacteria with a single dose of antibiotic, you also increase the pH of the of the gut environment because most of those good bacteria produce acid and keep the pH low in the gut because low pH suppresses the growth of unfavorable organisms. So you wipe down the, the bacteria, the pH goes up, and then on the return of the microbes, the bacteria that do better at a higher pH come back faster. And also the other thing that does great in the presence of antibiotic are fungus. So you get more fungus coming back. Then you take the second dose of antibiotics. Everything gets wiped down again. And then on the return, more of the unfavorable bacteria grow, more of the fungus grow. So a single course of that unnecessary antibiotic can perturb your microbiome for up to two years, studies have shown. right? So just that alone. And then you're drinking water from the tap. There's chlorine going into your system. Um, you know, you might be eating processed food, even though it says organic, will have some herbicide and pesticide on it. Um, all of those things compound together to absolutely destroy our ecology. So pretty much everybody at this point has probably had an antibiotic at some point. So yeah. what what are some of the good bacteria that we can use to help to repopulate the gut? And what are those different strains? So the ones we've been studying are Bacillus endospores, right? So we always, I have this, um, this uh, evolutionary biology inkling in my in my system, um, and so anytime I look at what is good for the system, what could be potentially therapeutic, I always look at evolutionary biology and I go, what did our ancestors do, or what did our ancestors get exposed to? Um, so when I was looking at the in the probiotic world, I, I you know there's a lot of products out there with all the Lactobacillus bifidobacteria strains, um, you know there's hundred billion CFU counts, there's two hundred billion, there's fifty billion. It's kind of all over the place, and there's stuff in the refrigerator, stuff on the shelf. And so when we started looking at all of those, what we found is that the vast majority of them just kind of die going through the stomach. So they're not really doing a whole lot in terms of trying to repopulate the gut or change that ecology back to a healthy ecology. So we started looking at, okay, where did our ancestors get their probiotics from? And as it turns out, they got a vast majority of their bacterial exposure after birth from the environment because our ancestors were smart enough to eat dirt, right? They didn't sterilize their food supply. They didn't, they didn't sterilize their water and chlorinate it. So they drank, drank water from rivers and streams like you soaked your feet, feet in. Uh, they, they ate roots and tubers and dug for, um, uh, for food and, and hunted animals. And so everything, everything they ate was teeming with environmental bacteria. Now, the vast majority of environmental bacteria just die going through the stomach as well. But as it turns out, there are some environmental bacteria 
that actually live in the gut as their primary home. They simply use the environment as a way to get from host to host. And these are these bacillus endospores. They're really fascinating bacteria because when they leave the gut through defecation, which they do at some point, they are outside of their normal home, so they cover themselves with this thick, protein calcified layer which protects them in the outside environment and then next time you swallow them if you happen to be smart enough to get some dirt in your system they survive through the gastric system because of this protein covering and they get into the gut and one of their primary jobs is to re-establish the the um, ecology in the gut it's really quite fascinating this year we're going to be submitting a paper for publication on a study that we did that showed that adding just four of these spores can actually almost double the diversity of the microbiome and increase the growth of these keystone bacteria like acromantia, bifidobacteria, uh, fecalum bacteria, and so on, because these strains act as the police of the gut. So Bacillus subtilis, Bacillus clausi, Bacillus uh, coagulans, uh, Bacillus lycniformis, and Bacillus indicus. These are the most important of those uh, population modulating bacteria. You know, so they kill off bad bacteria. They have the capability of producing a bunch of prebiotics that actually regrow the good bacteria and they establish balance within the system. So if someone's been on antibiotics for a long time in their life and they have very low levels of uh, these other good microbiome in their gut, if you add in a, a bacillus endospores into the system, would it then take a long time for uh, these endospores to police the gut to be able to keep the bad stuff down and allow what's left of the good stuff to start uh, coming back? No, it actually doesn't take very long. That's the beauty of, of the gut ecology is that it can change very rapidly um, in a very short amount of time. The study that we're going to be public, uh, publishing was just done in three weeks. So we saw oh, almost wow. a doubling yeah, of the microbiome a significant increase in acromantia, fecalum bacteria, bifidolongum, all of these kind of keystone strains um, in just three weeks. And these were kind of average person microbiomes. They were not really bad in terms of dysbiosis, but they were not, they didn't have healthy populations of those kind of key bacteria. And they tended to have relatively low diversity. So these were average people who've probably through the course of their life had you know, a dozen or half a dozen antibiotic rounds, um, eats some processed foods, lives in a modern environment where things around them all have antimicrobial effect. Um, so we were surprised to see that we could make such a significant change in just three weeks, but but we did. And um, and that's why it's, it's a kind of a, a landmark study because nobody has ever shown that adding a probiotic into a, into a, a microbiome will actually increase the diversity and increase the growth of other strains that you're not adding specifically. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So when you're adding in the the bacillus and those spores into the system, I know we're talking about the gut right now because that's where a lot of the microbiome live, but mm -hmm. does the bacillus and those spores also help for microbiome growth throughout the body, like in the genital region and every everywhere else? Yeah, that's that's actually uh, another study that we're doing right now. So we are doing a study with the uh, UC Davis uh, dermatology department where we're looking at ingesting the the bacillus endospores and then the impact of those of the ingestion of bacillus endospores on the skin microbiome. Um, and we're actually seeing some positive changes there. And and we're doing another study 
on the ingestion of bacillus endospores and changes in the um, the microbiome in your mouth, in your in your gums, especially uh, for people that have verified gum disease. So people who have verified gum disease, whether it's early stage or, or end stage where it's getting to periodontal disease stage, they have very specific pathogen and biofilm growth in the mouth, in the gums, in the gingival tissue. Um, and there are indications that a modulation of the gut microbiome will change those populations. Now, the, re the people always ask me why. And the reason is because every surface in our body is covered by, um, you know, connection to the immune system and then as well as a mucosal layer. There's something called a singular mucosal theory where the gut mucosa is a central command center for, um, for changing the mucosal tissue and the immunology of all of the other parts of the body. Uh, for example, one of the spores, uh, the bacillus clausi that we use, has studies in it that show that it's a really effective treatment for upper respiratory infection uh, in children, and it's used in, in Latin America and Europe as a prescription drug for that purpose. So imagine a, um, a spore that you ingest um, has the ability to change the microflora in the lungs, uh, which is, you know, an area distal from the gut, and but connected through the mucosal and immune system. Um, so yes, absolutely, the gut, changes in the gut uh, microbiome have a significant influence on the rest of the microbiome, including the urogenital tract. Yeah, and earlier you mentioned that in the the genital region, the microbiome should be smaller in numbers. So I know a, a lot of my audience, there's a lot of people that have uh, various issues, yeast infections, uh, bacterial infections down in those regions. So can you talk about what are some of the good uh, bacteria that should be populating those regions? Yeah, in in women especially, it's um, it's a set of five different lactobacilli. So these are Lactobacillus crispactus, Johnsi, um, I believe Ruteri is one of them. So there's five. They call the big five strains. Now the thing is, you can't supplement those to to get them to grow. They are there, but when you have a messed up mucosal system, those good bacteria become suppressed by an overgrowth of yeast um, and things like Streptococcus, Staphylococcus, and so on. We also know that personal lubricants are devastating to those good bacteria. So when, when you use a personal lubricant, tip, most of them are glycerin-based and so on, um, most of those will destroy the good bacteria and then leave room for, for fungus uh, and bad bacteria to take hold. Um, and in the case of women, um, they get it even worse because when they go to the doctor's office for examinations, the lubricants that they use in the doctor's office to lubricate the speculum and so on is even worse than typical personal lubricants that you can buy you know, online or at stores. So, so those have a huge impact um, on the vaginal microbiome. There's not as much that is known about the male um, uh, urethral microbiome, but we do know that significant changes in the male urethral microbiome can, of course, lead to higher incidence rate of UTIs and all that. But men do have an advantage over women is that in that the um, the the urogenital microbiome is tucked way inside the body uh, versus women's are, are are more exposed to the environment and everything else as well. Um, but in the case of women, there's five key lactobacillus strains that need to that that need to be predominant in the vaginal microbiome, or it it can impact, of course. Uh, UTIs, vaginal uh, yeast infections, and so on, but it also impacts fertility.
that's another aspect of it. Yeah, and you mentioned that um, supplementing um, for women could cause uh, yeast infections and other issues because it can stimulate growth of uh, some of the bad stuff. So what are some ways for women to help to repopulate uh, that region? Would it be through the gut first or some kind of suppository or something similar to that? Yeah, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that once you affect the gut uh, mucosal tissue, it it changes the um, the microbial content in the vaginal uh, mucosa and the vaginal uh, microbiome as well. So, for example, we work with around sixteen thousand doctors in the in the U.S. right now uh, who utilize some of these spore based products that we that we make, and and many of them that are managing UTI chronic UTIs or chronic BV or chronic yeast infections do it by using oral probiotics. So oral probiotics will, um, in a very short amount of time, create an influence in the vaginal mucosa that will allow the immune system to actually go after bacteria and fungus that shouldn't be there and allow the growth of the good bacteria that should be there. You know, there was, a, there was a, um, an interesting study that was published by Royal Holloway London University with one of the strains that we have, they were using the strain as a delivery mechanism for vaccine antigen. So the vaccine antigen happened to be tetanus antigen. So what they did is they took the tetanus antigen, they stuck it on the spores, and they, they had women swallowing the, um, the spores. And the spore took the, took the vaccine uh, antigen down into the gut, presented it to the gut immune system so that the gut immune system can create antibodies against the tetanus um, antigen. And what they found that was fascinating is within two hours of ingestion, they could find anti-tetanus antibodies in the vaginal uh, mucosa of the women. That's how quickly that message got sent out from the gut to the vaginal mucosa to help protect the vaginal mucosa. Wow, that's impressive. So would you say that the gut is kind of the main stopping point or the main, um, I'm not sure what the word I'm thinking of, but the main hub of Mm -hmm. the microbiome of the body? Yeah, I call it the central command center. Um, You know, we know that there's some influence on the gut microbiome from the mouth and skin and other areas, but but that control is very minimal compared to the amount of control that the gut microbiome has on the rest of the microbiome. So absolutely, the gut is the central uh, command center, and, and in our world, in the functional medicine world, we it it makes even more sense that things that uh you know ayurvedic practitioners or traditional chinese medicine practitioners um have known and even naturopaths have known for decades that 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 disease starts in the gut and and the gut microbiome is is the um is the answer to that i mean if you think about it hippocrates said back in 400 bc that death sits in the bowel and and Poor digestion is the root of all disease, right? So, uh, you know, the mod, the father of modern medicine knew that uh, that uh, the gut was a central command center. Yeah, and it sounds like your dog back there is agreeing with what you had to say, which is super funny. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. They get <laughs> they get all worked up when I start talking about microbiome stuff. <laughs> they love to hear the research too. <laughs> exactly. So speaking of research, I'm I'm sure that with your research, you're looking at the microbiome and then how it interacts with different issues within the body. So have you seen any kind of patterns with uh, the microbiome and the impact it has on uh, various weight issues that people may suffer from? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the biggest things is um, the growth of acromantia mucinophilia, um, the level of bifidobacteria, and the ability of the microbiome to produce short-chain fatty acids, especially things like butyrate. So those the people that struggle with weight management issues and, and certainly struggle with trying to lose weight um, tend to have low acromancia, low bifidobacteria, low diversity in general, and then the inability or low ability to produce short-chain fatty acids. So those characteristics are are really elevated in people that are naturally lean. You know, all of us know that one annoying person that can eat whatever they want never gain weight, right? And we we always said that they had a quote-unquote high metabolism. But as it turns out, they don't really have a high metabolism. It's, it's the fact that they have certain features in the microbiome that control appetite, um, that that reduce the amount of cal- uh, caloric absorption from a meal, that uh, stimulate fat burn, and that modulate insulin response. And so those key factors are are what keep certain people thin and and make it uh, in some cases even hard for them to gain weight. Uh, but uh, the same factors in reverse that 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 allow people to struggle with weight. And we know that that dysbiosis in the gut when you destroy the microbiome, one of the side effects of that is weight loss. Uh, sorry, weight gain. This was actually seen in the meat industry. So in the meat industry, as you know, they use a lot of antibiotics, especially in cattle and pigs. The main reason they use antibiotics in cattle and pigs is to get them to gain weight faster. Interesting. Yeah, it's not for the health and the disease and so on. It's because a side effect of the antibiotic use is that the the pigs and cows get fat, fatter faster. Um, and that same effect occurs in humans as well. When our guts are... are um, dysfunctional, we gain weight easily. So when you look at studies on, um, you know, uh, nomadic tribes, or when you look at studies on current hunter-gatherer tribes that are living an ancient uh, ancestral life, like the Hadza tribe in Tanzania and the tribes in Papua New Guinea, they tend to be lean their entire life um, and and muscular their entire life. And the and the reason for that, when you check their microbiome, they have a very diverse microbiome. They tend to have very high levels of acromancia. They they produce a lot of butyrate and short-chain fatty acids. Um, but here's a great part about it is we know that those features can be enhanced in almost anybody. Yeah, that is super interesting because we know when you start gaining weight, then that can lead to various health issues. It can suppress your immune system. And if you're constantly getting sick and going to the doctor, then you're probably getting put on a lot of antibiotics, which, as you just said, can cause more weight gain. So you kind of get stuck in that never-ending loop. Absolutely, yeah. And and here's the crazy thing about it. Um, you know, let's say you take a course on antibiotics because uh, of of something, an accident you had or something, and and let's say the antibiotic was needed, right? So about. 40, 50% of the prescriptions of antibiotics were needed, and so they, they will save lives and so on. Um, but let's say you take a course of antibiotics that you need it. It will destroy your microbiome. It makes you more susceptible to weight gain. And wh- the other thing that it does is it causes your gut to become leaky. Now, when your gut becomes leaky and the endotoxins from the lumen of your intestine are allowed to migrate through the mucosal barrier and the intestinal lining 
into your circulatory system, one of the places that they go is they go and they mingle with your adipocytes. Those are your fat cells in your body. When these endotoxins, and these are bacteria-derived endotoxins from the lumen of your gut, when those endotoxins um, you know, mingle with fat cells, one of the things they do is stimulate the growth of the fat cells. So they actually make the fat cells fatter and bigger. So the leaky gut that comes from the dysbiotic flora drives uh, weight gain. It drives dysfunctional immu- uh, response to, to uh, glucose and sugars and, and uh, insulin. And then all of those things mess up your appetite, mess up the gut-brain connection that tells you when to stop eating. And, and then all of that continuously feeds more dysbiosis because then you eat more and eat the wor- worst kind of foods that perpetuates the the dysbiosis so you go into this never-ending cycle of of the inability for your body to respond appropriately to food and and then hence your inability to manage weight you know so it, it's a self-perpetuating um situation and leaky gut is at the core of it yeah and we see that a lot in the functional medicine world where um people are trying to figure out do we go after the leaky gut first or do we go after the microbiome first? Do we do both at the same time? Is um, adding probiotics going to stimulate uh, a growth in the the unhealthy microbiome? So which direction do we go first? So um, if you, and obviously everybody is different, everybody has a different starting point, but would you think it'd be more beneficial to uh, add in soil-based probiotics first to try and increase the good bacteria in the gut or would you try and do that at the same time while you're trying to close down the the intestinal mucosal lining yeah so that's actually you know in even in the functional medicine world that's a common misconception that we can use nutrients to seal up the gut right so like things like l-glutamine are used or, or, or licorice root and aloe and things like that now those things do have a function in the gut and they can add building blocks to rebuilding the tight junctions, the mucosal lining and all that. But one of the things that that is uh, not well understood, even in the functional medicine world, is in order to utilize those nutrients, you need the right bacteria. So bacteria are 100% in control of the permeability and the structure of the mucosal lining and the lining of the, of the, of the intestinal uh, cells uh, and, and all of the tight junctions because we don't have an endogenous way of stimulating the expression of tight junction proteins. Those are the proteins that keep all of the intestinal cells together and, and keeps them from being leaky. We also do not have a way of stimulating our goblet cells to produce more of the mucosal layer to regenerate the mucosa. All of those things are controlled by bacteria. So, in fact, my recommendation to people, and, and we published a study last year in the World Journal of Gastrointestinal Pathophysiology, the first of its kind study showing a, a, a resolution of leaky gut in just 30 days without any dietary changes and any other therapies, just by using the bacteria. And, and these are the spore-based bacteria that we work with, the Megaspore product. Um, and so what, what the idea behind that is you get the the spore-based bacteria into the system, they start suppressing the bad bacteria that are destroying the mucosal layer that are causing inflammation at the intestinal epithelium, which then messes up the tight junctions. So they start um, pushing those bacteria out. They start increasing the growth of the good bacteria 
that will produce butyrate that then stimulates the goblet cells to produce more of the mucosa, especially mucin 2, which is a dense, thick barrier type of mucosa. Um, and then butyrate also improves um, the, the tight junction function. And then these bacteria actually stimulate the expression of the tight junction proteins. So my recommendation always is start with the bacteria, let the bacteria start to take hold after, after a week or two, start adding in the nutrients that we know the bacteria can utilize to improve the structure. Those nutrients are like L-glutamine, lysine, uh, leucine, um, you know, even things like licorice root and so on. Um, those are all useful, but you need the bacteria to utilize them in order to rebuild. So when you're starting the first week or two, are you doing higher doses than you typically would do for the soil-based or spore-based uh, probiotics? We actually taper people up from a low dose. For example, with the with the Megaspore product, it's a two cap a day is the is the clinical dose. That's the dose that we did all do all our studies with. Um, what we do is we end up tapering it up, starting with as little as half a capsule every other day. The reason for that is these are powerful organisms. They will go in and start killing off bad bacteria. If somebody has really dysbiotic gut, really leaky gut, they can experience some die-off reactions uh, if you go too much too soon. And so when you taper them up from, from a, as little as half a capsule every other day for the first week, then you go to half a capsule a day, then one capsule a day, then two capsules a day. If you do that kind of tapering, it it uh, mitigates vast majority of the die-off reaction. Um, and and the die-off reaction is a good thing. It's actually indicating that there's a change happening in the gut, and you want that to some degree. But in in many cases, if you have too much of it, it can be uncomfortable for the patients. So we taper them up. Uh, we get them to the full dose. Once we get them to the full dose, then we start adding in the other nutrients as well. Awesome. That's a that's a really good approach. I like that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, now, a lot of people, they're focusing on eating probiotic-rich foods or fermented foods. And you mentioned earlier that a lot of those probiotics end up dying in the stomach before it even gets to the small intestine. So is there benefit in eating fermented foods, or is it better to have um, spore-based probiotics coming into your system? Um, actually, so they, they play two different functions. If you can only do one of them, I would say the spore-based probiotics are more um, efficacious because they actually change the microbiome. Uh, but fermented foods do have a role. Um, and fermented foods do not provide probiotics. In fact, I was asked to speak at um, a big fermentation festival, and you know that was the fir my first sentence in my talk is fermented foods are not a source of probiotics. And I thought either they would stand there and listen to me, or they would chase me out of there with pitchforks. Uh, but you know, <laughs> yeah. but fortunately for me, I'm still alive today, so they did listen. And then the, by the end, the the crowd understood. The thing is, we have this misconception that if we if we do kombucha, if we do yogurts or kimchi, that we're getting probiotic. So probiotic, it has to be a live functioning organism that lives, that makes it through the gastric system, gets to the gut alive and actually creates a functional change. Um, you don't get that from fermented foods because all the bacteria from fermented foods die in the stomach. Now, the benefit from fermented food 
comes from the ferment itself. And there are studies on this. There's a study, for example, on a, on a fermented yogurt that, that has been shown to have um, improvements in, in gastric function, like reduction in bloating and improvements in regularity. Then they did a version of the study where they took the yogurt and they heat killed the bacteria. So they know that the bacteria in the yogurt's dead and they administered it and the, and the dead bacteria yogurt had the same effect. So we know it's the ferment because the ferment during the fermentation process produces things like organic acids, um, you know, peptides, dipolonic acid, 13-MTD, all of these really amazing ferment, fermentation byproducts that they, that feed a lot of the good bacteria within the gut. So when, again, if I go back to my uh, evolutionary biologist side of me, um, I look at what our ancestors have done for the last few thousand years and they do both. Right, they get good exposure to spore-based bacteria from living closer to the environment, eating dirt, and so on. But their foods also got spoiled, and they were smart enough to keep the spoiled foods. And in fact, they started uh, fermenting foods for to preserve it in on purpose. And so they consume both uh, fermented foods and they consume the bacteria. So I always give this following analogy. Uh, if, you're, if your gut is a garden, and it's a very complex garden with thousands of plants, the, uh, the fermented foods are like fertilizer to the garden, but the spores are like your gardener that can go in and specifically modulate that garden, pull out the weeds, increase the growth of the good plants, and so on. Um, so you've got your fertilizer and your gardener, both are important to maintain a healthy garden, um, you know, but if you were only able to do one for some reason, I would do the bacteria. So would you consider a fermented food more of a prebiotic then? Absolutely, yeah. Fermented food is actually fits into two categories. It fits, in, fits into the category of a prebiotic because there are components in there that feed other bacteria um, and increase the growth of other bacteria. And then it's also considered a postbiotic. That's another new category that's coming up where, um, where there are specific bacterial metabolites that are made that have a significant function in our body. And, and, and more and more pharma companies, for example, are focusing on the postbiotic side because, uh, you know, for example, they'll find that this particular bacteria makes a, um, a metabolite that, that increases GLP-1 expression, which is a glucagon-like peptide, very important for insulin response, sugar control, and so on. So then what they're doing is trying to focus on that metabolite and trying to make that a drug for controlling diabetes. Um, but, uh, but the fermentation will also produce those kind of metabolites. So a fermented food is a prebiotic and a postbiotic. And then the bacteria, the spore-based bacteria is a probiotic. Fascinating. There's so much in the microbiome world that's changing so often. So I'm glad to have you on here to, to bring some light to some of the myths and the misconceptions about probiotics, prebiotics, and the whole like. So that is awesome. Uh, so you've talked about one of your products, uh, Megaspore. Can you talk about, um, you know, if you go to the store or you go to a vitamin shop or something, you see probiotics, they're either on the shelf, they're in the fridge. Uh, people say that they get destroyed via heat. Uh, is that the same for uh, uh, spore-based probiotics or no? No, that's the beauty of spore-based probiotics. So we put like a five-year shelf life on the product in, in a, at room temperature. Uh, we've in fact baked them at 455 degrees Fahrenheit in cookies and they 
still survive. Uh, you know, and so they, they're amazing. Uh, in fact, there's a study on Bacillus subtilis, which is one of the main spores in our formulation, uh, where it can survive in the vacuum of outer space for six years. So they, they did a study in the, in, in the space, uh, in the space station showing that this bacteria can survive in the most harsh environment for any living organism, which is in, in outer space, uh, for six years. Um, it, it's quite amazing, these bacteria. And, and so, you know, a, a store shelf or encapsulation bottling is nothing for them. Um, you know, they've been through a lot worse throughout the course of, of the history of our, of our planet. Um, and, and so all of this stuff in the refrigerator, you know, and it's funny because as a microbiologist, the way I got into the probiotic space is I was hired by a large multinational company because I previously had a research company, um, that would do studies on ingredients and things like that. I was hired by a large multinational to study the probiotic industry and figure out what on the shelf made sense, had good scientific substantiation, and then give them a recommendation for the type of probiotic I would formulate. One of the first things I did is I would go to the stores and I'd always ask them, what are your best probiotics? And as, as you would expect, they always pointed at me to the stuff in the, in the refrigerator, you know, and I would start questioning them and say, okay, why is it in the refrigerator? And they'd say, well, because it has to be a live culture that makes it a higher quality probiotic. And so to keep it alive, we have to keep it in the refrigerator. And I say, so, okay, if it sits on the, uh, at room temperature on the shelf, it'll start to die off. And they say, yes, that's why we keep it refrigerated. When you take it home, make sure you refrigerate it. And I say, okay, so if it can't survive 70 degrees in this room temperature, how does it survive 98.6 degrees in the body and a pH of one going through the stomach, you know? And, and no one ever had an answer for me. And so we started testing the products and studying them and seeing that when you put it through the gastric system, they all just die. Um, so, you know, the, the most important thing for people that go into the stores looking for probiotics is, um, you know, look for one that has verified survivability through the gastric system, um, and, and ones that have studies on the actual formulation. You know, that's another big difference in the probiotic space is people will say, we have clinical research strains in the product. Well, that means that they've taken three, four, five, six strains, each that have their own independent studies by themselves, and then mix it all together and assume that the combination is effective. When in reality, we don't know when you combine all those strains, if they're going to be antagonistic to one another, if they're going to, uh, if their mechanism of action would be contradictory um, in some way. So you want a probiotic that actually has a study on the finished formulation that you're buying. And that's kind of what we, we, we do. We focus all our studies on the actual finished formulation. Awesome. Well, I have one final question for you, and this is um... – more about testing because we see yep. the different tests out there, Ubiome, Viome, they're out there testing uh, people's guts. Is it important for people to go get their uh, microbiome tested at this point or currently is it just gathering information about what's going on in your body? Yeah, I think you're just gathering some interesting information. I don't see any need for the testing because there's a lot of issues with the testing as well. There's a there's a company called Zymo Research that produces DNA probes and things like that for sequencing um, research institutes and other companies. They actually did a study where they, they and they published this study. They actually took a single sample, a single stool sample, and sent it to five different um, of these kind of commercial uh, microbiome testing labs. And what they got was five different results, right? So none of these 
techniques that are being used by the commercial labs are published. They're not, they haven't gone through peer review. They're all internal processes. We also know that the, that the bacterial distribution in stool is not homogenous. So you don't have like an even distribution of all bacteria in the stool. You could be get, getting a 20 gram sample from this part of your stool, and that would look very different than a 20 gram sample from another part of your stool. Also, not all bacteria are shed in, in fecal matter at the same rate. So that particular bowel movement may contain a, a higher abundance of certain bacteria that are that are that are being shed, but there are a lot of other bacteria that are still in your gut that aren't being shed at the time. And so they don't use these commercial um, stool tests in a lot of studies if, for the reason that they tend to be kind of, um, you know, inaccurate and, and, and have a lot of false negatives uh, within them. So I say, you know, to me, it, it's more about the functionality of the gut, how you feel. Um, the vast majority of Americans, if not all Americans, have a dysfunctional gut to some degree. We know that, right? Because we all live in this world where we're exposed to chemicals, exposed to antibiotics. Even organic food have uh, organic foods have high levels of glyphosate on it. So we know our guts are messed up. There's no need to test it. And when you test it, there's no way to treat it specifically to the test, right? For example, I get a lot of these questions from functional medicine docs that I work with or even patients of theirs where they send me the test results and they go, oh, my God, I have very high levels of pseudomonas. It shows a plus three in Klebsiella. It shows over amount, uh, high amounts of E. coli. What should I do? And then the question is, what can you do? There isn't an antimicrobial that you can send in that will specifically kill the Klebsiella or the Pseudomonas or the E. coli and not destroy the other good bacteria, right? So there's, there's not a whole lot you can actually do when you see the test. We can presume we have a, a dysfunction in the microbiome, um, and then we, we do the basic things that we know, increase the diversity of the gut, um, improve the growth of the good, of good strains, and, um, and, and then help to heal the mucosal lining and the, uh, the epithelium layer as well. So if you start just focusing on those things, the ecology of the gut will reset itself and it'll go to a balanced state. And going back to the stool test, I would also assume that uh, what comes out in your stool is dependent upon the type of food that you're eating, because I would assume right. that different types of food that you eat would also pull out different bacteria with it. I could be wrong, but that would be my guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and uh, when we did our leaky gut study that we published last year, um, we wanted to see if we, we were going to add a, um, a stool test as part of one of the outcomes. And so to test the, the, the robustness or the accuracy of the stool test, we took five individuals and we gave each of them five stool tests five days in a row. So there was a total of 25 stool tests. If there were consistencies and accuracies within the test, we should be able to match each of the people with their five tests, right? Five days in a row should show a significant similarity um, that we could categorize. Here's this person's five tests. Here's this person's five tests and so on. We sent all of the data to a biostatistician. He couldn't make any sense of the data. It was all completely random. He couldn't match anyone's test to anybody else and, and so on. And so we opted not to use it in the study because we, we saw that the, that the tests from day to day were giving completely different results. Um, you know, and, and, and again, it's, we're at the infancy of actually testing the microbiome, uh, in a commercial way that there's ways that they're doing it in a much more, um, accurate way in research. 
but those kind of ways are totally impractical for the commercial side because it would cost you know four or five thousand dollars to test your microbiome once. Um, you know, whereas in the commercial side, they're using five six hundred dollar kits, right? So so that that's a that's a big problem right now. And and I know a lot of people are getting the test done. I would say that if you want to do it just out of curiosity, just to see what you see in there, that's totally fine. But but if you start changing your diet or start trying to treat to the results of the test, you could you could make things worse than better. Awesome, Kieran. Well, where can people find you online and learn more about uh, what you're doing with the Megaspore and the Microbiome Labs? Um, so if you go to microbiomelabs.com, there's a lot of information there. We've got a blog uh, that has a lot of my webinars. I do a lot of free webinars, a lot of educational programs. Um, we have a lot of articles written up for people to understand the microbiome in very specific contexts like your microbiome and IBD, your microbiome and diabetes, weight management, so on. Also, as I've learned recently, if you put my name plus the word microbiome in YouTube, there's hundreds of, of uh, videos and recordings on there on various topics on the microbiome. A lot of uh, people that I've done recordings with have put it up there, um, uh, thankfully, and so there's a lot of content on there as well. So go to microbiomelabs.com, go to the blog section, and then go to YouTube as well and just put my name in and you'll see a lot of stuff. Awesome, Kieran. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge. We'll definitely have to have you back on the show in the future, especially uh, since you're constantly doing research and the microbiome uh, research is constantly growing. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and uh, teaching my audience more about the microbiome. It was it was all my pleasure. Um, there's nothing more that that drives me with with uh, full of passion than getting to share this information. And as you said, we have ten human clinical trials going on right now, four of which will be ending this year, all in very interesting areas. So there'll be a lot more to talk about uh, in the future. So I would be more than happy to come on again. And, and thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, there you have it, folks. It has been a while since I've been absolutely blown away by a guest, and Kieran did a fantastic job of just providing a whole wealth of knowledge and so much information that he's been working on with the research of the microbiome. And as you can tell, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions out there about uh, different ways to treat the body and uh, different things going on with the microbiome, and we're still learning. So uh, the more we have people like him in the research world digging deeper into all this stuff, the more we can learn about how the body is actually working and uh, gives us better ways to start uh, treating people in uh, better ways. So I'm super excited to talk with him again. And uh, Karen and I talked about some of the studies that are coming out, which I, I can't talk about, but it's definitely going to shake up some of the stuff that is... Um, out there right now. So super fascinating uh, information. And uh, he is, like I said, one of the people that I wish I could keep picking his brain every single week. Okay, next week, we will be finishing up our microbiome series. And we have Dr. Ken Brown coming on to talk about bloating and uh, different ways to get rid of gas, uh, especially in the large intestine and a lot of the um, different issues within the colon and the large intestine. So I'm super excited to have him on as well. And then after that, we will be diving into some uh, 
more information about fatigue, uh, how to fix your fatigue with Dr. Evan Hirsch, and then we'll speak finally with Sarah Russell about hypermobility and some complicated cases. Stay tuned for all of that. Okay, if you have enjoyed this episode, then please go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Those ratings and reviews actually do make a difference in the iTunes world because it helps to get our show out in front of more people. So if you go to summitforwellness.com slash iTunes, then you can uh, just quickly leave us a rating and review and it would be extremely helpful. All right, keep on climbing to the peak of your health and we will see you next week.